Well, today, guys, we start a brand new sermon series. Woo! Entitled Steadfast. And if you've got a Bible, could you turn to the magnificent book of James, which is fairly near the back of the Bible. Um, if you haven't got one, that's fine. We do have a, it'll come up on the screen behind us. Um, but if you're a Christian, I would encourage you to, to always bring your Bible. There's something about rustling of leaves and getting into it and checking that what I'm, I'm saying is not complete rubbish, okay? Because we love the Bibles of church. We're really passionate about it. Last term, we had a series called Missionaries, and uh, you might have been to figure out from the title what it was about. It was about the fact that every Christian, uh, whether you go to the far ends of the world or, as for most of us, just stay here, um, we are all called to be those who don't just keep our faith all private and introspective, but that we tell the world with our lips and with our lives about Jesus. That was last term. Now, this term you could easily say that the book of James is a letter written by this guy called James to a group of churches who have heard the missionaries series, not literally, but they've got in their heart the passion of God for the lost and they are 110% going for it big style, which is brilliant. And yet also comes along, along with that a whole load of challenges and trials that they are now facing that James wants to help them to understand will come their way. James, as a book, it kind of it speaks to us. It's a very practical book, and you can read it and get huge amounts for it straight away. But it really makes sense when you understand that the people that James was written to were a people who were on mission. They were a people who were following the heart of God to, through their lips and their lives, communicate the reality that God is good and that God has made a rescue plan for planet Earth. And what we're going to see again and again is that James equips them effectively with a very simple and yet profound truth. That as you go out following God as a Christian, saying, Lord, use me for your purposes, as you then face challenges as the group that James is speaking to faced, and as we surely face, there is one very simple key. It's not easy, but it's very simple. It's the call to be steadfast. It's the call to keep going. When we face challenges and difficult things, the Bible frees us from putting a huge pressure on ourselves to be supermen and superwomen. And it actually says with great love, hey, listen, I want to give you a vision for Maybe something that nowadays in the 21st century has not seen that cool or funky, but being steadfast. So let's read the first few precious verses then of this wonderful book from verse 1 of chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who asks, who doubts rather, is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. 
For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's, he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Father, thank you. Your word is clear. It is powerful. It is dynamite. Come and smash open wrong thinking. Come and change us. Why don't you just pray that even in your heart, both here and in Whitstable. Let's just say, Lord, we want right now to encounter your word. We want your word to live in our hearts. We don't want to be just, you know, sitting on a green chair, listening to some stuff. We want to be those that meet God through your word. Come and help us, God, to know your nearness and to be changed. Amen. 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 I just want to start by looking at what I've called the impossible promise. Did you spot it? When you read these words here in verse 2, let me remind you of them. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet various trials. For you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, etc. Um, is it just me? Or um, when I hear that first little bit I said, I kind of zone out after that. Count it all joy, he says with a smiley face, you can imagine. When you meet all these horrible things, these difficult things in your life. Okay, count it all joy, he says, with apparent no sense of irony, no sense of sarcasm or humour. He seems to be saying this, from what I can tell, seriously. And it's interesting because he uses the word when, when you meet. Not if, for a few unfortunate, those Christians who, you know, (gasps) just that tiny minority who find it hard in life. When, inevitably, you meet. And that word meet, it's, it's the same Greek word in Luke 10. You know the story when Jesus tells about the guy who's going <clears throat> along the road and then he gets attacked and only the Samaritan, the good Samaritan, helps him. When the attackers come upon him, it's the same word. It literally means to fall into. He fell into an attack. He was surrounded by attackers. They were around him. There was no way out. It's that idea. When you fall into trials of various kinds. It literally means multicolored trials. From small Monday morning trials that you're thinking about right now to huge things. When you inevitably meet them, when you fall into them, when you feel surrounded and almost attacked and like there's no way out, then count it all joy. Now, I'm sorry, I, I honestly think sometimes we read the Bible too quick. Because we read that and we all went, it is crazy talk. Is it not? Is it not me? Or is it just when I read that, I think, James, I think he got a bit, I think he got a bit carried away here. Or this is, this is at least ludicrous, if not really insensitive. You know, if you're facing life-threatening disease, if you're facing grief, of the death of a loved one, you're facing potential unemployment, you're facing whatever it is, and James the pastor says to you, first thing, basically no warm-up, count it all joy. I'm sorry, but this, for me, I find find it hard. Is anyone else here with me on that? Does anyone else read this and say, "This this is strange, this feels odd. Because I'll be really honest with you. I believe in being honest, all right? Life's too short not to be honest. When I face trials and challenges, even small ones, let me be really honest with you. I just spent a few moments writing down some of the emotions I feel, the thought processes I have, the behaviors that I demonstrate when I face challenges. And let's see if it's pure joy 
Or is it something else? When I face challenges, I often feel profound frustration. I feel sometimes resentment to God or the people maybe causing the trial. I can feel more and more emotionally hard-hearted. I can see that in my soul when I face trials. I often see in my own life, actually when I face trials, despair, worry. My appetite can get affected. My sleep can get affected. Sometimes I notice when I'm facing real challenges in my life, I'm more snappy with the girls, with my wife. I can be more tempted by illegitimate pressure releases. I can find that anger is more part of my soul than when I'm not being tested. Confusion. What's going on? Have I done something wrong? Just exhaustion. I can find trials exhausting, tests exhausting. I can find fear is more a part of my life than when they're not, when trials are not here. That's, I often see fear in my heart. I can often find myself more and more in a victim mentality. I'm the only one going through this. God, what? Is... I often feel more of a temptation to hide socially. Temptation just to back away. I just feel like giving up often. If I'm really under trials and difficulties. Now, that's just me. And maybe you've just got the most rubbish pastor in the world. But maybe this room is filled with people who can resonate with what I'm talking about. So, what, what do we do then with this? What, what do we do? Is it just that James was a freak? <laughs> like this weird sort of... Posito man, who no matter what happened, they just life bounced off him, was like indestructible man, and somehow it kind of got through the filter. And this ridiculous statement is in the Bible, and actually it's really unhelpful because when you're going through trials and life's rubbish anyway, the last thing you need to feel is some sort of weird pressure that you're failing because you're not full of joy. Or is it just me? Is it is is the end of the sermon that James was an impressive guy, not like me? Bye. Or is there hope? And have you even already read the answers and not spotted them? Is that possible? Because I think, I believe with all my heart, that in the very few verses that we've even just read, he has given us key after key after key after key to show that what he is saying isn't crackers, it isn't crazy, it's actually stunningly possible. Two keys. A general key and then some specifics. The first general key is in verses 5 to 8. Remind yourself of it. It says, if, anyone, if any of you lacks wisdom. Notice that if. If you lack wisdom. It is possible to be someone who is spiritually mature and growing more and more and generally walking in wisdom. It's not that you always will need it. I think there will always be an element in your life where those, come, those moments come. But there is a hope here that as you grow as a Christian, you can increasingly be someone who learns to walk in wisdom. But he says this, he says, if 
you need wisdom. If let's let's put it this way, if you have found my opening point about joy in trials difficult, ask. Just ask. Now I know the hesitation in your heart, as I said that to you is ask. But the problem is this. It may be simple, but that three-letter word is sometimes the most difficult thing in the world to do. Because are you, are, are, am I someone who, by nature, finds it easy to ask for help? Very few people are naturally like that. And in fact, I would, I would want to even drill down even greater and say the essence of sin itself is effectively to say, I know best, I don't need help. So what he's actually saying is, he's not just a little ditty, a little helpful fridge magnet, ask occasionally. He's actually challenging the very core DNA of what has caused the whole of mankind to go away from God. That we don't ask, we don't recognize we need help. Or is it just me? I am, I am depressed at times when I recognize how long it goes in my life. I'm a pastor, I've been a Christian 15 years, and yet I suddenly realize I have been carrying worry, fear, anxiety, all those things I mentioned, not just for hours at times or even days, sometimes for weeks. And I suddenly, I haven't given this to God at all. Or is it just me? And God says, you need to become someone who asks. And the reason is very profound. It's not just because he gives. It's because he gives generously. You see that? What's he talking about here? He's talking about his very character. We're on holy ground. You see, when we, when we don't ask God, when we're going through stuff and, and we're just happy to keep basically carrying stuff, which, which is that double-minded person thing, that foolish way he's saying, when, when we're just happy to stay in foolishness rather than actually saying, God, I need your wisdom to cut through afresh, what actually we're doing un- unconsciously at times is, is really denying the fact that God says in a thousand different ways, I am unimaginably Generous. I, you see, we get infected by the cynicism of the UK. Yeah? You, you know, I, I sometimes think of God like, like in, an insurance company that doesn't want to pay up. Yeah? You pay all the premiums and then something goes wrong and like, oh, I'm terribly sorry. Footnote 33.121213 means that you are exempt. We won't pay you anything. I can sometimes view God like that and think, well, if this, this perfect storm occurs, he might actually answer my prayer. And it just I think it just breaks the heart of God. Because he says, when you're doing, the the first step is to ask. Because I'm a God who gives generously. And then he just adds truth upon truth to all. Without reproach. There's no catches. There's no, I'm not trying to catch you out. It's like when Daisy and Lily say, what, what do you want for Christmas, girls? I'd like a scooter, please. I'd like one too. They ask in faith. They're not, they don't doubt. They're expecting on the 25th of December to open up two scooters. Do you understand that? Because they trust mum and dad. Their attitude glorifies us. It brings glory to me and Josie. If someone was to say, do you think you're going to get those scooters? Of course. So do you see, when we say, when we say, God, I'm giving you this and I need your wisdom, the attitude of simple faith and trust is so dear to God. 
And I don't know if you're like me, but I don't only do the foolish thing of often carrying the worries and the challenges of life far too long before converting it into prayer. Then, horror of horrors, I then, I then, you know, in a rare moment of godliness, actually pray about it and ask for wisdom. And then, like a few hours later, something will happen that's an answer to it. And then I'll doubt that's actually God speaking. Anyone else have that? You'll just read an article or something on the radio or someone rings and you're like, well, that could possibly be God directing, but I doubt it because he's not really real, is he? Let's be honest. We need it like, it's like the Gideon fleecing. We need it like 10 times written in the sky. Someone's face pressed against the window screaming a prophecy at you, whatever, you know. It's just ridiculous. We're so cynical and it robs us, doesn't it? God is unimaginably good. And he wants us, when we're facing those tests and trials, to learn. Charles Spurgeon says, every challenge you face in life, the second, the very second you turn it into prayer, it becomes a blessing. Every single challenge in life. Do you see that? Because that thing has caused you to turn it into the vertical, and suddenly you're connecting with your creator in your frail, weak way, and it becomes a blessing. I want us to be connectors increasingly quickly in our lives who learn to dive into the vertical and say, God, let me give this to you, let me give this to you. That's why Paul said be constant in prayer. Why? Because he was constantly under pressure, constantly under trials, constantly being pushed to the limits. So he was constant in prayer. So we ask, there's a huge, general, stunning key. Kay, Wis- Kay Wisdom, rather, Kay Warren, uh, a fantastic uh, speaker and author from America. She says, when we face the massive crisis in our lives, All our words about great faith are worthless. What matters is what we do. You see, our our tests are what demonstrate what really is in here. And what we, we recognize that we have to be those that say, God, we ask, we ask, we ask, we ask. We throw down our natural sinful DNA, which is I'm fine, and we ask. We become askers. We become, in that sense, aware of our neediness. I'm really needy. The older I get, the more I realize I am incredibly needy. And that's not cool, all right? No one wants to be needy, but you are. And you might as well embrace it and give it to God. I'm so needy. I need to ask more now than I ever have in my life. His character, he's saying here, but also magnificently, It's not just his character that leads us to be those who ask for wisdom in trials. It's his track record. You see, he has already, in verses 2 to 4, given us not one, not two, but three huge, specific keys. Specific keys. Wisdom keys. So that we can actually see the reality of Entering trials, going through trials in the way that James says. One deals with our emotions, one deals with our mind, and the third deals with our will. Did you spot them? Did you spot them? We just read them together. The first of them is this. He says the word count. Count it all joy. Joy is an emotion. It is different from a worldly happiness. It is a God-given fruit of the Holy Spirit. He's saying, it says in the NIV, consider it pure joy. What he's saying is it's not a pressure. Okay, it's not a pressure when you're facing tough stuff that you should, you must feel this. It's actually a promise. 
It's an encouragement to believe that ever increasingly in your life, the trials and the challenges won't go away, but there is a genuine blood-bought promise, spirit-achieved promise of joy in God amidst all that's going on. Look at the words he says here, consider it pure joy, my brothers, my sisters, this is family language. He's, this is an exclusive promise to Christians. He's saying, if you are a brother of Christ, if you are in Christ, because of your position in Christ, you can say, God, I'm facing these things, and I, I want to ask for fresh fruit of the Spirit hourly. Let the joy of God that transcends understanding fill my soul. He's not saying, whip it up. He's saying, know your identity. You're a brother of Christ. You're a brother together, but you're a brother of the great one who can dispense joy unlimited. And this is the deal. You see, as a Christian, the more that you hunger for genuine heart change, even more than comfort, the more that you learn, in my experience, very, very slowly, but still learn it, that when stuff comes that's challenging, which is pretty much all the time, I can begin to see joy because I know and I trust that those tough things will produce heart change in me that a life without it will not do. And I am hungry for heart change. And I know you are. That's why you're here today. You want to grow. You don't want to stay as a spiritual infant. You want to grow. That's why you're sitting here today. I'm hungry. And so what happens is you start to learn to count it all joy. I'm anticipating joy. I'm getting ready for the emotion of joy. In fact, I'm exercising a certain level of, of God-given self-control over my crazy emotions and saying, Lord, let the joy of God flow when these things happen because I know that the challenges of life produce the joy and they produce the gold. I, I, I remember chatting to a guy fairly recently and saying to him, he was just saying to him, look, I just need to say to you um, that another senior leader has just sort of seen some elements of your marriage that aren't great. And he's going to talk to you about it, but he wanted me just to kind of bring that to you, just to prepare you for when you, when you guys do meet. And this, this guy said, oh, thank you. Tell me, what is it? What is it? So I, I brought to him, well, there's this, and I think probably there's some element of truth in, in this thing. And his response was a thousand miles away from defensive. He literally closed his eyes and went, thank you. Oh, yeah, no, you're right, I know. That's good, yeah, thank you. Yeah, I know, that's such a blind spot. That's really, I can't wait to talk to this guy. That is a man who understands what would be, for some, a trial that would, they wouldn't learn anything from. They would get defensive, how dare you? He's counting it all joy because he's hungry for heart change. He wants to grow, do you get that? And, and, it, and it inspired me hugely to see that in him, he was more hungry for that. Charles Spurgeon says, trials teach us what, they, what we are. They dig up the soil and let us see what we are made of. Now that's not actually always a pleasant thing, but there is a, a wonderful joy. When you get convicted of sin as a Christian... Don't you know there's that strange joy? Because you know God's alive and he's changing you and he's going, ah, you proud thing. And you're like, oh, yeah, but oh, you're so good. Because I was proud, I was living under all this wrong pressure and pop, 
You've got it. Bosh. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm a Wally. <laughs> I'm a Wally. And you're so good, Lord. And you showed me it. And that was agony, but a beautiful agony. Pure joy. Do you understand? The Spirit brings that lovingly to us. And what, he, and what happens is, you see, we experience joy because in all of this, guess what? We're getting closer to him. The Bible, it promises that when we experience challenge and trials, there's a closeness. There is a closeness. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go on mission and experience loads of tough stuff. And I will be with you. I will be with you. I love Acts 16. It's when Paul, one of the many times he's in prison, and it just says, in, and he was at midnight, and he was singing at the top of his lungs. And he, <laughs> oh, isn't that quaint? There he is, bless him, having a little sing-song. We think of like English or American prisons, like a TV and a microwave and a squidgy bed. He, he would have been in like a hellhole, facing potential death. His head most likely would have been in stocks, arms spread wide in stocks, legs probably in stocks. We don't know how long he, was gonna, he would have been there, days, weeks. Agony, embarrassing, shame. And he is singing his head off, glorifying God. Is that Paul whipping something up or is it the glory of God in a trial? God giving joy. God drawing close. God when Paul most needed it. You see, sometimes I, I don't expect joy when I'm in a trial or a test because sometimes I wonder whether the, 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 thing, the, the difficult things are my fault. Do you ever have that? There's things going on and you think, I feel, Lord, maybe these tough things are happening because it's my fault. And so joy is almost like irresponsible. I should be serious. These things are difficult and they're probably my fault. And someone could have looked at Paul if they were like his you know, mentor saying, dude, you should be starting a church. You should have 500 by now. And you're like locked up in a stock. You're failing, Paul. You shouldn't be, you know, he could have interpreted it like I've done something terribly wrong to, to, to warrant being in here. But I don't think he saw God like that. I don't think he saw God as like a taskmaster who gave joy to the very deserving. I think he just said, Lord, I maybe I have made a mistake. I have no, but like, Lord, I'm just expecting your joy. I ask for my birthright. I'm in your son. <laughs> I'm before the Father. I might be physically here, but I'm spiritually alive, seated with Christ in heavenly places. Let your joy flow. Do you see? I think God wants us to be those who increasingly, even in trials that we might think, I should be terribly serious because maybe this is something I've done wrong. Actually, we can be those that say, Lord, James says, Paul demonstrated, count it all joy. Expect hope for, to grow in joy. And then he deals with our mind. He gives us the first key with the emotions. But then he deals with our minds. He says, for you know. Do you see that in verse 3? For you know, City Church, that the testing of your faith, it is not in vain. Your pain is not in vain. The second massive key is to understand when you're facing the difficulties of life, it isn't in vain. The testing of your faith, look at this, produces. Most of us, if we've had a day and someone says, how's your day? And you go, yeah, it was all right, it didn't feel very productive. It's a horrible feeling, isn't it? Most of us hate not feeling productive. And I don't think that's actually, I think humans are designed 
in their hearts to want to produce things and to be fruitful. And he's saying, I want to give you a vision that even when you feel most weak and most vulnerable and like you're not doing anything externally, internally, that enduring trial is producing something in you. We see with the natural, we see with the physical, we look out here, I didn't produce, but he's saying, no, you're looking in the wrong place. It is producing. You've got to know it's producing. You've got to have a vision for your soul to be ever-growing, is what he's saying. Man looks on the outside, God looks on the inside. And when you start to glimpse that, what it does is it gives you a vision for 24-hour, seven-day-a-week internal transformation. That even if your mum and dad look at your life and go, what is she doing? She's hardly earning anything. She's not making anything of her life. You're saying, you're looking in the wrong place. Those things have got a place. But I'm getting ready for eternity. My soul is what I really care about as well as those things. And God says that the trials of life produce something. They're not in vain. The pain I'm facing, the difficulties that I'm experiencing, my loneliness, my financial worry, my confusion. The, The Bible says they are producing something. God is always at work. And suddenly it gives you a vision for the internal realm, almost like a garden, changing, growing. And it's glorious. It means that you can genuinely, without any hint of irony, say, Lord, every day is a productive day when God is allowing me to go through tests and trials. They produce something in me. And what we see here is is this hint that the focus of James was not just on the here and now. You see, he uses these very specific words. He says, For you know the testing of faith produces steadfastness, steadfastness to have its full effect that you may be perfect. The, the original kind of meaning here is like a, I'm told in secular Greek, the word teleos is about, it's describing when animals become fully strong and grown. You're perfect, strong. And then this word here, complete, the Greek word halos, or halo, 360. It's like fully rounded. When you become strong and fully rounded and not lacking anything, what's he talking about, guys? He's saying to a measure in the here and now as Christians, we can expect growing, amazing maturity. But surely in James's mind, ultimately, when will we become ultimately as Christians perfect and complete? In eternity. So what he does here, he says, listen, you need to know when you're facing trials, you need to know that God is at work in your inner man or inner woman, producing, increasing growth, getting you ready for eternity. In eternity, when we stand with our creator and we review our life, I believe a huge element will be, what was your life like in here? Let's think about your life. Right now, I won't name names. Think about you standing with Jesus, and he'll say, did you have a very active life, but internally, you stayed an infant? You you just stayed, you didn't grow. You had a life where your gifts, the spiritual gifts, you, you, you grew in, but your character, you didn't grow in affection for me at all. See, see, I think God lovingly, he says, when you get to eternity, when you're with, with me, it's going to really be key. And so 
I, I care about character, and I want you to understand in heaven. See, this is why in Galatians 4, Paul uses these extraordinary words. He writes to the church of Galatians, he says, I am in the anguish of childbirth for you. Why? Until Christ is formed in you. Paul wrote those words saying, the thing that causes almost like a childbirth agony in me, church in Galatia, city church, is that Christ every day is being formed more in you. Is that your experience? It's not mine. I am not in the anguish of childbirth to make sure that Tom Shaw is, is, Christ is growing in me, that he's being formed in me. Wow. It's the heart of God. Do you understand that? We can get distracted by the world around us and just stay completely still and not understand the most precious things that God gives us at times are those trials that produce in us an increasing move towards internal growth in God. Do you get that? God wants our hearts to be aligned. And what's so, you see, that's a little scary. But what's so gloriously exciting and releasing is, what is the way, what is the mechanisms, what is the missing ingredient? If there's his trials, and they are meant to be producing ultimately, getting ready for heaven, an internal soul that is perfect and complete, how do we get there? What's the, what's the missing ingredient, Tom? Is it real good knowledge of the Bible? Is it like praying like crazy? Is it making sure you're at church every single week? What's the missing ingredient? Steadfastness. Ah. <sighs> It means keep going. It means endure. It means when you're feeling like you're carrying a heavy weight, don't believe the lie that that's just a, something's gone wrong. Christ comes and draws alongside us. It's the idea that the mature Christian life is one where you are built to endure. You're built to keep going. It says in the day of evil, stand. doesn't say advance and do karate chop spiritually. It says stand. It's not very glamorous. Do you know what? I want this church with all of my heart to be steadfast. Because the Bible says, if you keep going one day at a time, the Bible says don't worry about the future. Just pray about today. Just keep going. It's so encouraging because when you realize God is steadfast and he's calling us to just draw upon his stunning, ongoing resources, you say, I just have to keep going. Yeah. It's not, it's not flashy. It isn't funky. It doesn't sound massively strategic, but it is absolutely the key. Let's steadfastness. And, and, and I finish with this final word. He's talked about the emotions. He's talked about the mind. Understand. Have a vision. But then this final element, he deals with our wills. Did you notice that he says, let steadfastness. Let it have its effect. You see, this idea of tough things producing good things in us is very common in the Bible. James is not uh, certainly the only guy to talk about it. But what is apparently unique about this passage, and don't miss this, is that James, he adds this word let that is incredibly important. It's an imperative. You see, for example, Romans 5, Paul says, we know that sufferings produce endurance and endurance character. True, but not always. That's what James is saying. He's saying you have to work with God. 
You have to work with the trial. You have to let steadfastness have its effect. You only experience the benefit of the trial if you work with God to allow it through you. If we fight it, we can go through difficult things and then not produce what God wants to produce in us. This idea, let steadfastness have its full effect, is almost like it's a person. You know, like sometimes I've heard doctors, when they're ill, they're the worst patients. They're like, no, I know better. Excuse me, I know, I'm fine. It's not that. It's the, and it's, like, it's almost that image of, let's stop. Shh, 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 Tom Shaw. Tom Shaw, listen. I'm allowing the trial. Stop fighting it. You have nothing wrong. Let it have its effect. Let the uncool, overlooked quality by the world of steadfastness, day by day, week by week, year by year, slowly grow in you. Because if you do that, Tom, it is an overlooked key that will lead to phenomenal fruit. That's what he's saying. Let it. Let it. And how on earth do we do that? How do we do that? We ultimately have to trust God. We have to trust that God isn't just a bit in control. And this is huge for us, guys. We have to trust he's 100% in control. I won't ask for a show of hands as to the control freaks in the room. There'd be a lot of hands. I am a control freak. I compare myself with other control freaks to make myself feel better. I'm a control freak. Right, it's everything. I'm a control freak. Now, we use the word freak to make it funny, but it's actually really deadly. It will stifle our growth in God. I love the image. You know, sometimes in kids, kids in the back of the car, they have the little pretend little dashboards. And they really think they're in control. And you're driving the car, and in the back, just the little plastic dashboard. And we can be like that. Oh, this is a bit painful. Trust you away from. Let it have its effect, please, please let it have its effect in you. Let that thing you're going through go to work in you. Because the stakes are so high. Jerry Bridges says these words. He says trials. Listen, guys always change our relationship with God. Either they drive us to him or they drive us away from him. The extent of our fear of him and our awareness of his love for us determines which direction we move. That is very, very penetrating. Trials always change. So the, the trials you're facing right at this very moment inevitably will change your relationship with God. And the choice is whether they drive you to him or subtly, perhaps, away. Warren Wearsby, he says, let trials make you a giant in life. Not a midget. They have that effect. They can either grow us in God or... Let the trials of life either make us a giant in life or a midget. God wants us to be those that trust 
He is perfectly in control. I love John 18, where Jesus is arrested. And as the guards come to arrest him, he says words to the effect of them. He says, guys, to the guards, let my disciples go. And then he quotes in the Old Testament, he says, so that it would be fulfilled that all that the Father gave me were not lost. You see, Jesus was aware his disciples were not ready for the trial he was about to go through. He, he knew, that. can they go? Please don't let them come through what I'm about to go They are not ready. Do you understand that? He perfectly was shaping their life. He's perfectly shaping your life. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, He will not test you beyond that which your ability to bear. Charles Spurgeon says these words. He says, So surely as the stars are fashioned by his hands and their orbits are fixed by him, so surely are our trials allotted to us. He has ordained their season and their place, their intensity and the effect they shall have upon us. Wow. Just as surely as he is in control of every star and planet, he is in control of our lives. So what it means is, the key here is recognizing we are, we are dependent ones on him for every breath. See, that's why the whole book starts. How, third word of the book, how does James identify himself? Did you spot it? James, the brother of God, Jesus, which he was. Or did he say, James, a leader of a mighty ministry in Jerusalem? No, no, he says, James, a servant. His identity was as a servant who was dependent on his master. A servant depended on their master for accommodation, for food, for security, for pay, even for their marriage, everything. But he boasted in his identity tell you why? Because staying in a place of tasting that he was just a dependent servant on the master, staying in that place meant he was empowered to all the days of his life say, Lord, I know that you are the master like no other. You are a master 10,000 times greater than any human master could ever be. He was flooded with a sense that to be a servant of Jesus and God meant he was in the most secure and beautiful place any human can ever be. Even when trials are allowed by God, he knew he was a dependent one. Freedom comes when we know that. 